Hello and welcome to another Sustainable Wine podcast. This is a recording of a conference session that took place as part of our Sustainable Wine Packaging Conference on the 23rd of June 2021 as a virtual event. It was kindly sponsored by BSI, the British Standards Institution. Thanks so much to them for their support. Looking forward to hearing from all of our speakers on some initial thoughts in this opening session on the carbon footprint of packaging and what we do about it. So I'm going to ask each of them to introduce themselves and tell you who they are. Not all of the, you will be familiar with each of their organisations. So they're going to do that in a kind of round robin. And then I will ask each of them to make some opening comments on what sustainable lower carbon packaging means where they work today. So starting with you, Anne, on my immediate Zoom right. Um, Anne Jones, tell us uh, about yourself and what you do and Waitrose. Good morning. Well, good morning from me. Good afternoon, evening or whatever at the time of day it is for you. Uh, and welcome. Thanks for joining us. Um, my name's Anne Jones. I'm from Waitrose and Partners. Uh, for those of you who don't know us, we are a premium UK supermarket. Uh, we actually have quite a large overtrade in wine. So we have about a 6% market share of the whole grocery market in the UK, and 12 to 14% for wine. So um, it's hugely important to us. Um, we're also a partnership. So we don't have... Um, shareholders per se we are owned in trust for all of our members and our number one purpose is the happiness of those members uh, which I know sounds very very um, noble but that's through worthwhile and profitable employment so it's a it's a beautifully balanced um, balanced set of objectives but we also have a constitution that was written nearly 100 years ago now which uh, was very prescient because it includes within that um, that we're committed to contribute to the communities uh, in which we operate um, and that we must take all reasonable steps to minimise detrimental environmental impact and that we also promote good environmental practice. Um, we also have our own farm, produce our own milk and mushrooms and all sorts of other things, um, including our own sparkling wine off our own vineyard um, with the help of our, our friends at, at Ridgeview. Um, so, I think for us, it's hugely important that we get to grips with what we mean by environmental sustainability, um, particularly in packaging. Um, we all know that the, the, the right answer, if we were being truly objective, is that nobody buys or sells anything. Um, and that's, you know, that's the best environmental solution. So actually, as with everything, it's all about balance. And that's why we're so delighted to be part of the roundtable to try and work out what what the right thing to do is not not kind of moving with the winds of popularity but actually trying to find our way to that balance which has a consensus as being the best route forward so that's me and where I where I sit within this environment thank you thank you well I suppose I'm I'm next um my name is Carl Jesus I run the marketing and the communications for Amory and Cork Emerin is the world's largest uh, core company. We sold 742 million euros of core products and applications last year. The vast majority of it still around uh, core stoppers. Um, was 5.4 billion stoppers that we sold last year. And if you think that's a lot of wine, well, yes, a lot of wine, a lot of champagne, a lot of sparkling in general, but not that much uh, of a slice if you consider that 13 billion corks were produced and sold last year out of a total universe that we estimate at about 19 and a half billion uh, bottles that every year I filled and stopped with something. Um, it's a 150 year old uh, company. We actually celebrated, we didn't do a lot of celebration last year, but uh, we, uh, <laughs> we, um, we were founded 150 years ago last year. 
And it is today a publicly listed company, although still in a lot of ways uh, a, family, a family company. And we have over 20,000 customers around the world. If you make wine, uh, there will be an Amarin Cork subsidiary in your, uh, in your region of the world, from Chile to Australia, from South Africa to California, of course, all over Europe. And it's not just um, wine today. Uh, the remaining 30% of the business ranges from aerospace and defense applications to Birkenstock shoes to flooring. So today the applications of Cork are quite remarkable. And one of the interesting things to us is how in the 21st century, in some of the world's most demanding organizations in terms of quality, as in the case of the aerospace industry that I just mentioned, Cork is actually capable of making inroads. And it is today one of the fastest growing uh, market segments for, for Cork together with high-end natural whole Cork stoppers. And today we hope we'll be able to uh, tell a little bit of the story, the sustainability story uh, behind, uh, behind Cork and uh, the Cork Forest. It looks like we've maybe lost Toby, um, but it seems like we're going alphabetically, so I'll hop in next if that's okay, Kim. Um, so my name is Joanna Griffiths. I work for BSI. Uh, BSI is the uh, UK's national standard body and a, a founding member of ISO. Um, I'm um, a global food community director, but my background is in packaging. I've spent about 20 years now in packaging and in standards. Um, and packaging is a real passion of mine. Um, I'm really... Um, enthusiastic about its role in supply chain to obviously make sure we, we get the goods and services that we that we uh, expect in our homes. Um, so as I mentioned, BSI is the, the UK's national standards body, founding member of ISO. We've been around for about 100 years as well, so we're in good company. Um, we, are, uh, we have a Royal Charter mandate, which means uh, we are here for purposes of removing waste. Uh, it also means that we're non-profit distributing and we don't have any shareholders, which means we don't have any particular particular agendas. I think it's a, a really sort of valuable position to be in to sort of find the, the, the what good looks like in, in industry and, and help to share that as broadly as possible. Um, and our role, I suppose, is to is to act as umpire um, and bring all the experts together and, and start to um, you know de de uh, define what good looks like, define some of the common languages. Um, and then create solutions that, that help the whole industry move forward and improve. Yes, and uh, Kim Forsberg, uh, I'm sustainability manager at uh, the Swedish wine importer group Vingruppen. And we're a collection of uh, wine importers operating on the Swedish market in partnership with our worldwide producers. Uh, we're importing wines from 19 different uh, countries worldwide. And uh, our largest customer is Systembolaget, uh, uh, the Swedish monopoly, as well as restaurants around Sweden. And uh, I'm going to tell you more about our uh, strategy when it comes to reducing the carbon footprint in the remarks. But reducing uh, the carbon footprint of packaging is really important to us. And uh, it's very relevant on different sectors of the Swedish market as well. And uh, we're having, um, and as well as reaching our 2030 goal of 100% um, fossil free and resource efficient uh, packaging. And I'm going, to give you, I'm going to send you a link to uh, to Vingruppen so you can read some more about our sustainability work. Lovely. Thanks, Kim. I guess moving on, the next most obvious thing for us to do is to have um, a couple of minutes each if we could talk about where we see 
the future of wine packaging going in terms of sustainability, how we actually as an industry and what our part of that industry is in making that those small differences and how we balance that. So I wonder, Carlos, if we could come back to you on that. Hi, everyone. Sorry, my, I, my internet died for a minute. <laughs> Apologies. That's okay. Well, Dan was doing a great job of replacing you, so... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, Toby. Not replacing you, just stepping in gently for a couple of minutes. Thanks very much. Where are we up to? Uh, I just went back to Carlos for some opening remarks on where he felt he um, his business was be- going to be helping to make the next moves forward within sustainability for our industry. Excellent. Well, don't let me interrupt, Carlos. Well, thank you. Thank you both. Um, when we look at sustainability for us, I mean, it's such a direct line, it's a straightforward line between that and our business for one simple reason. Uh, Cork Oak Forest, and there are about 2.2 uh, million hectares across the Western Mediterranean Basin, the whole of the Western Mediterranean Basin. Uh, these are native species um, that have been around for millions and millions of years. And cork has been used, um, well, the oldest archaeological records date back to, the, to, the, to ancient Egypt but in an intensive way uh, since the 1600s. So, and it has always been, as I said, a direct line between the availability of raw material and the existence of the business. So we always look at that as, as, a, as, as a very easy proposition to understand. Of course, we also understand that it's a lot easier if you don't cut down the trees to, to have a good sustainability story. But the fact is, that you cannot touch a cork oak tree until the tree is about 25 years old. And the first harvest does not give you cork good enough to make stoppers out of it. And by law, you cannot go back to that tree until at least nine years have gone by. But that second harvest still does not give you good enough cork to make the high value natural whole cork stoppers that we all look for. So off the bat, you have 25 plus nine plus nine years, so 43 years before that asset starts to mature. And if you are a forest owner, a cork forest owner, and Amarin, um, we traditionally, cork companies do not own cork forests. We got our cork from thousands and thousands of uh, property owners around, again, the Western Mediterranean Basin. So after 43 years, the property owner asks someone with a very sharp ax to go and whack that tree for which I have waited a long time to mature and pry the cork out of it. Well, if these guys don't know how to do it, you're going to damage that tree. It's a very, very skilled job. It's a very physically demanding job because this happens during the summer, June, July, and August. But it is also what's probably the best paid agricultural job anywhere in the world. It's 135 euros a day. And of course it happens during the summer, but it's easy to find four, five, six people from the same family unit doing this. And to make the math easier on everybody, just imagine even 100 euros a day, multiplied by four or five, multiplied by three months, what you get is a very powerful injection of cash. The rest of the year, you'll be doing something else that, of course, does not pay that much. But that injection of cash is going to fix people to the land. And if you want to start talking about sustainability, then we have to realize, well, that CO2 could be fixed today and tomorrow we would still have a big sustainability problem around the world that has to do with people, that has to do with biodiversity. And the cork forests are one of the 36 hotspots of biodiversity around the world. Think of some of the other 35 and you think of places like Borneo, Costa Rica, the Amazon. That's a kind of wealth that we have in this part of the world. And it also, it's absolutely fundamental in regulating water cycles, fighting desertification and protecting against forest fires. 
but it also retains you too. And the retention, the intrinsic retention of one single natural whole cork stopper is 5.7 grams of CO2 off the bat, retained on top of every bottle. But when you factor in the entire balance of the cork oak and the ecosystem, the cork oaks that of course are gonna live for about 200 years or so, it can be as much as 309 grams of CO2 in one single bottle. So I think half jokingly, half seriously, we're bringing good news for wine consumers around the world to buy a bottle of wine with a cork on top of it. But it is a massive retention capability of CO2, a massive CO2 sink that the wine industry is, is literally and figuratively sitting on top of it sometimes, and we're not factoring that in. And what we have been working with everybody in the wine trade, from the people making the wine, to the people selling the wine, to the people writing about the wine, and alert them for this, because everybody's spending so much money in solar panels and biodiesel, that's great. We should do that, we ought to do that. But at the same time, it would not be fair on anybody not to account for what is a direct, measurable, quantifiable contribution to a great, one of the best, actually, sustainability stories anywhere around Europe. Thank you, Carlos. So um, a quick question on that then. How do you take that story and put it better in front of the wine industry? And I suppose um, you want to make sure that they don't stop doing the other stuff and just focus on talking about cork, because as you said, all of the other things are equally important as well. So, I mean, I think it's really important to understand how do we better communicate uh, about cork while encouraging the rest to be done as well? Because it is a phenomenal story, but I, I'm, like you, I'm amazed how many people don't quite know about it. Well, we don't, we don't have the kind of resources that large, you know, fast-moving consumer uh, goods companies have. So we, we, we have to be a little bit more modest on that. But you mentioned what I think it's one of the great expressions when you think about cork and think about sustainability story, which is punching above our weight. Of course, the cork, if you look at the, the overall balance of what a wine bottle carries on, you know, packaging, if you, if you take the, the, the glass out, Packaging certainly core can be just a little bit, but it does punch above its weight, not only because it does not make sense not to tell the whole story and consider the entire CO2 retention capabilities that the ecosystem provides the wine trade, but also because we need, we need demonstration that it does not have to be, it cannot be an utopia to want to balance people, planet and profit. The biggest fallacy is sustainable development. It does not exist. If it's not sustainable, guess what? It's not development, is it? So we also bring that onto the table, the ability to demonstrate that, okay, it's not easy to replicate, but it's a template that debunks the myth that it's not possible to advance social causes at the same time you advance environmental causes and financial and economic costs. It does happen, and guess what? The only reason why that exists, the only reason why that example exists for the rest of the world to see is because of the wine industry. Because 70%, 7-0 of the value created for cork in the world comes from the wine trade and the sparkling trade, etc. So we have to share this with our customers and crucially with the customers of our customers, the distribution, the retailers, that like waitress, <clears throat> excuse me, like wait waitress, for example, they're actually doing a great job pushing the, that leadership forward. 
Thank you. Well, natural segue to turn to you then, and about this, the overall topic and any responses to what Carlos has to say, has had to say is, you know, where, where are you on this um, doing something about the carbon footprint of packaging? I guess that's the that's where we start. And then any further comments related to what Carlos has had to say would be welcome. Yeah, I think um, for us, it's we have this enormous responsibility and also this privilege as a retailer of of being effectively a middleman. Um, and what Carlos was saying about communicating to the consumer, we 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 have a wonderful way of interacting with a wide range of producers and suppliers, um, as well as a distribution network, as well as a direct uh, communication with customers. And so, for me, I think our our position and where we where we can really add value is helping to take this this huge ecosystem of complexity and try and distill it into a message that encourages customers to make quite simple choices um, to do the right thing. Um, of course, with our responsibility comes comes that, that complication of understanding exactly what that right thing is um, and how to distill it. And I think that's, that's where we are trying to create that leadership, share best practice, understand the complexity and not just just come up with quick and simple answers but actually really genuinely get underneath and get get into the weeds if you like of the detail of of full life cycle analysis and actually what those answers are because you know the elephant in the room really with wine is that effectively burning sand to make glass is is a challenging environmental thing to say is the right thing to do but actually if we're looking at sustainability in in the round then there, there's a lot more complexity to it than that. And equally, we we want to be moving forward in ways that are sustainable for, for businesses, for people, as well as for the planet. And is that balance of, as Carlos said, of, of customer partner profit effectively for us. Um, and how we do that is where the Sustainable Wine Roundtable comes in for me and where we want to be leading in that space, but equally not making knee-jerk reactions. So there's an awful lot of work to be done still. Um, and that's what we want to do. This, this, we're not going to be able to put out a paper tomorrow that says, "Here's the answer," and customers buy this, not that. That, that's not what this is about, because that I don't think is actually going to give any of us the results that we that we need. Um, so this is the start of a very long piece of work, in my opinion, um, and that's what we're trying to get involved in. Thank you. And- and um, we've discussed this before, but just to clarify for the audience, you know, where does it sit in the consumer preferences um, around the issues they want to, to tackle? I was talking to Tesco about this recently, and my friend at Tesco said, well, yeah, I'm dealing with palm oil, cotton, uh, palm oil, well, cotton as well, because they're a clothes retailer, beef, soy. I've got NGOs all over me um, on yeah. all these issues. Wine is fascinating. We'll get to it, but we're not quite there yet in talking to consumers about it. Where are you? But funnily enough, the, the word fascinating comes up a lot, which tends to mean difficult. Um, <laughs> it, essentially, with wine, it's, it, is, it is really tricky because cust- our customers, they're the same customers that are buying all the other products. But when it comes to wine, um, there's a, a lack of understanding. And also, I think sustainability slips down that decision tree because they're already buying it to treat, they already feel a little bit naughty when they're buying wine. So therefore, feeling needing to feel ethically superior um, or moral, have some kind of moral moral win while buying it is not necessarily the thing that's at the top of their list. Um, it also, I think we as an industry need to clarify that that understanding of what that means because in chicken, for example, or indeed soy, palm, all these things, there's a very easy answer. 
I mean, if we go back to the days of tuna, we remember, you know, everyone goes line caught, great, sorted. It's a nice, simple message, free range, corn fed, whatever it is. Whereas in wine, we've sort of got organic, which customers are, our organic sales are absolutely flying um, because it's the only simple response customers can get. Um, but it, it, of course, it only factors off one element, which is the the actual production piece and doesn't factor in any of the other bits of sustainability, um, particularly carbon, which we, we would all like to see some kind of measure for customers to be able to understand. But it's just too complicated. And when it comes to walking into a, a large retailer or indeed the Internet, the largest of all retailers, um, they do, if you'll forgive me for this, effectively all look the same. Um, and we have less own label than some of our competition, which makes it much more difficult to control, um, but equally provides more choice. So I think that complexity is just is just so enormous that we as an industry need to find a way to cut through that. Absolutely. I mean, economies of scale are, are really interesting. Actually, a question on the on the own label thing. If I, if, if I was going to think of one of the best own labels from a supermarket I'd want to get by, it would be a Waitrose one. But I don't, I, yeah, thinking about it, I don't see that many. Uh, what, is well, there that's because you're in the wrong country, Toby. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but when I am not in the middle of a forest and in the UK, I don't see a lot of it, you know. No, we we do, we do have a couple of ranges. We have a couple of ranges. We have a premium range, which is about being in partnership with some of the world's best producers. We have a blueprint range, which is about classic um, classic own label, uh, classic style. So, uh, you know, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, a really great Alperino, all at great value. And then we have a sort of entry level, um, which is all about consistency of style. Uh, but we don't have as many of, of those wines as I, I see Sue's on the call. So m and are, are a great example of a really broad own label range that, that covers everything off and where they've got winemakers who, who have that, whereas we tend to work in partnership with producers around the world and and, you know, our customers come to us, for example, for Chateau Musard or the Chocolate Block or something from Journey's End. And, and that it's a, it's a very different kind of, of model. Thank you. Uh, Kim, turning to you, would you say Vingroup is also kind of a, a middleman or middle person in, in the sense that you're in between a retailer and the producers? Is that right? And really yes. interesting to me your point of view on how this conversation is evolving, Kim. Yes, so I completely agree with Anne. Uh, on the previous points, I think clearer claims to consumers and more partnership in the area of um, climate-friendly packaging is really important. Uh, so a little bit about what we're doing at Vingruppen. Uh, so uh, we know, we all know here that packaging is, for us at least, and I think for all of us, the, the largest source of CO2 from wine. Uh, it's still very hard to, to measure uh, CO2 from farming, but the packaging is really, really a key, key topic for for, um, for the wine industry. And uh, Wingruppen has uh, a, a well-established sustainability strategy. We call it uh, From Grape to Glass and Beyond. And one of our main targets is, uh, we call it choosing responsible packaging for our wines. So climate smart packaging, absolutely, but also responsible when it comes, you know, that can be also involves, you know, the questions of chemicals and, um, and ethics, et cetera. Um, and reducing the CO2 from, uh, from packaging is also very linked to our climate strategy. Uh, our climate strategy, we work in uh, four areas. 
where we reduce, first of all, reduce CO2 emissions. That meaning, for example, switching to lightweight bottles. And here the partnership is really important. So we have a constant dialogue with all of our producers about the opportunity to switching to lightweight bottles, reducing uh, up to 20% of the climate emission. And uh, the second one, converting to fossil-free op fossil options. And uh, we made a quite heavy um, impact assessment of uh, CO2 um, from packaging and what we could do. We did that as a part of uh, the Swedish beverage climate, sorry, the Swedish uh, climate initiative for the beverage industry. And, you know, that comes down to really, you know, we can actually look at, if we look at glass bottles and the CO2 from glass bottles, it's actually so much linked to the production of the material. And that still we use fossil uh, energy when we're producing glass. So by, you know, looking closer on how can we, you know, how can this big yeah, factories uh, converting to fossil free, we would actually solve a lot uh, of the issues with CO2 from, from glass because, uh, you know, lightweight, bottles, if you can do them fossil-free, uh, fantastic. The third uh, step in our climate strategy is compensate. That's maybe not very relevant in this discussion, but uh, we're actually, we compensate for all the emissions that we cannot do anything about at the moment. And then the fourth uh, leg of our strategy, which I think makes us quite unique in the industry, at least in Sweden, is that we, we invest in climate project, sustainability project in our value chain and supply chain. And uh, so we have put a price on carbon, a company price. We know this is coming anyway, so we're, we're starting. And uh, every year we measure the, the emissions and it goes into a fund and the money in the fund we're using to invest in our mainly uh, producers uh, projects. It can be anything from like a new tapping line for cans, etc. So that's the four legs of our climate strategy. And as a result, just quickly, we can see that when we started measuring our climate emission and started working uh, with a strategy, our uh, CO2 footprint from a liter of beverage was uh, 0.4 kilo CO2. While today, uh, two and a half years later, it's down at 0.33 kilos uh, CO2 per liter. So, um, and I would say um, the main, if we point at one thing that would be the most efficient is having this constant dialogue, the partnership with our producers, the trust, you know, being, being the middleman. So Stienbolag is driving climate friendly packaging really hard in tenders, et cetera. So converting that then always, you know, um, trying to achieve change. Okay, so I'm not going to be too long here, uh, but in summary, I think the trails, that's really important for the industry to reduce the CO2 from package wine packaging is uh, obviously converting to more uh, climate-friendly packaging, such as lightweight bottles, which is easy uh, to reach. And uh, the visuals is not really, we can't really say that the visuals are affecting the consumer choice anymore. It's you know, there are so many great options of lightweight bottles today, as well as paper-based options and cans. And uh, I think as well, we need to stay on top of new uh, packaging um, innovations, material innovations. We can get the inspiration, as Anne said, from the food industry, 
the food industry has actually has collaborated for a long time with the packaging manufacturers um, to develop um, packaging really relevant for the food for the food industry. And I think there is a lot to win to do the same in the wine industry. And the third thing and that Anne as well said earlier, I think it's important to, to collaborate around some sort of like uh, standard as we do in the, the sustainable wine roundtable and to create clearer claims uh, for consumers to buy into. Um, can I have some? <laughs> Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, this is my last notes here. Uh, you know, all of this are basically based on uh, some research and uh, trends that we see. Uh, first of all, uh, if we look at our uh, carbon footprint from our products, 64% comes from packaging. That's including transport and packaging. We're not including farming at the moment, so 64%. That's a big change uh, since a couple of years back because we've done so much in, in transports. And second of all, we've conducted several consumer uh, re studies uh, in 2020. And I think one really interesting uh, indication uh, from the studies is that for the first time, consumers state that climate and climate-friendly packaging is now the top priority. So it's overrun organic for the first time. And that's really interesting. Um, Yes, and I can also note that the last thing, uh, our largest consumer, Sustainable the Monopoly, is um, uh, now asking 68% of their tenders include some type of sustainability attribute, mostly climate-friendly packaging. So that's a main driver of our work as well. Do you know why it's not 100% for them? I mean, that's probably a question for them, I appreciate, but... Yeah, 68% is quite good, and it's... You know, if you look, so this is from 2019 to 2020, it was a huge increase. So I think you might see 100%. Soon. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they are talking about having a, a maximum bottle weight. Um, is that something you see as just a rule that will kick in at some point saying, right, nothing above X grams? I mean, obviously, champagne is, is sparkling can be different. But do you see that happening at some point? Absolutely. I think we're, I think, uh, I mean, uh, if we look towards 2025, absolutely. But I know they, they tried that a couple of years ago, but it was some backlash from the industry itself, actually. Uh, so I'm not going to mention the country, but, uh, but they tried to, they tried to do that a couple of years back. So, um, so we'll see, I think. So retailers don't hold all the power then. <laughs> Um, well, it's not often that I would post a link from the Daily Mail anywhere, um, except in a junk folder. Um, but uh, they have—they do occasionally do their job. And if you see that piece on uh, the bit of PR for for the uh, the frugal bottle there, which is an interesting innovation, but a very small retailer is using it. And, and as Sandra points out, um, difficult to recycle. Although I think that bottle is is recyclable. I think we, we're picking up themes here, aren't we? Which is there are no easy solutions. <laughs> and it's a mix of approaches that are, are taking place at the moment. Um, do you see a time, I suppose it's a bit of a reach, Kim, to suggest that, you know, alongside flight shaming, we'll see bottle shaming uh, in the in the Swedish consumer market. But on the other hand, Jancis Robinson um, has also joined the Sustainable Wine Roundtable. Thank you, Jancis. Um, she, you know, they're putting bottle weight on their tasting notes now, which I think is a really interesting signal to the industry. So is, I guess that weight reduction is as much a, a cultural issue 
uh, as anything else, isn't it? So we had a viticulture conference yesterday, and part of the challenge for growers is, you know, fathers or mothers coming to see sons and daughters running vineyards and saying, why is it so untidy? Are we going bankrupt? <laughs> and the sons and daughters saying, no, no, this is sustainable viticulture. And the parents saying, no, no, it should all be very tidy in neat rows with none of these weeds around. <laughs> and I suppose it's similar in in wine. And perhaps this is a, a comment for the wider panel as well, in that, you know, heavy bottles exist because that's where they always existed. And so that cultural change thing is, is it's clearly a part of it. Uh, are you seeing that on your trips to Italy, for example, which, you know, often has some quite heavy bottles? Absolutely. Um, absolutely. I think it's a matter of, as you were into a generation question, but I also think that for some reason, um, convincing go like uh, transiting to lightweight bottle is, is tougher in Italy. And I think there is a history of um, the lightweight bottles. You know, if we look 10 years back when, uh, when the conversion started, you know, the lightweight bottles weren't looking the same. They were uglier. You could really see that it was it was a cheaper choice. So the visuals, uh, I think, could scare producers as well as um, consumers. But it's a completely different thing today. You know, you barely see, there is barely no difference. Uh, so I think that's stuck a little bit uh, still on the Italian uh, market. Yeah. Well, the Barolo bottles seem to be getting lighter every year, which is great. I mean, there are some very simple challenges as well, which sometimes we don't think about. It's very hard to talk to consumers about. Uh, Tom and I were talking to um, uh, the Wine Society uh, the other day, uh, the UK retailer, 100 million in sales, 140,000 members. Um, and they pointed out something which you'll all be very familiar with, that wine in six or 12 packs is often shipped by couriers. and They tip it on its side and then it gets dropped or bounced four inches um, while they work out what it is on the automated lines. And of course, that causes more breakages, um, I think, than, than many other things. And so it's the simple issue of, the, of the, the courier's own way of working out what is what in their supply chain that can end up um, causing um, you know, a, a challenge for having more lightweight um, bottles. Joe, in your experience from, uh, from other industries, how does the wine industry collaborate better to send the right kind of message to unblock some of these challenges, you know, be that with glass manufacturers with sort of surety of, of purchase uh, or with uh, those in the supply chain, like that, that supply chain issue I just mentioned where yeah. you know, that four inch drop can cause <laughs> a climate change impact. Yeah. I, I think um, the, the packaging industry generally uh, is pretty good at, uh, you know, adapting to change and wanting to make their processes as, as efficient as possible. Uh, to make their products as, as, as um, cost-effective as possible because often environmental change or changes for the sake of the environment come back with a, a fiscal change. So, uh, you know, there might be an improvement on, on efficiencies from the amount of glass being made from a furnace. So, yes, it seems a bit odd that a glass manufacturer might go no to a lighter bottle because they can sell more, therefore make more money, hopefully. Um, I think there's um, definitely precedence in terms of different systems. I, I don't think we've touched on um, sort of returnables or reusables in, 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 in a big way at the moment. And I suspect that's, you know, there's the, uh, a lot of legal requirements around alcohol and, and, and wine and so on. Um, but I know in the last uh, discussions we had uh, just at the start of the month there, there's, there are ways to sort of manage that and, and, and you know, go back to source, if you like, for reusables, um, a bit like the old milk bottle um, 
uh, doorstep delivery uh, we used to have, but um, I would be very happy if somebody dropped off wine on my doorstep every day. Um, so I think there's uh, lots of uh, precedents for, for those types of things as well, and, and perhaps things that can be adopted, but of course they all rely on an effective system. Um, one of the other things I think is that a lot of, um, particularly in food, there's a lot of adoption of different pack formats. And I think, Kim, you mentioned some of the different pack formats as well. Um, so tomatoes, canned tomatoes is always my golden example, because if you turn uh, the canned tomato into a tetra pack or a tetra pick or a multi-layer laminate, you can get more than twice the amount on a pallet. So for a, a, a cupboard staple, it's a very effective change because you can, you can um, you know, you can transport twice as much in, in smaller space and at a lighter weight. But of course, the issue with recyclability comes back in on the, the, the facilities for, for recyclability. But I do think it's, it's, it's a retailer um, a prerogative, if you like, to start to normalise seeing different pack formats and then moving away from glass as the go-to pack format for wine just eases a little bit so that you, you, you kind of, oh, I'm used to seeing wine in cans or smaller bottles or things. And, and the quality is there, especially particularly the bag-in-box options, a very efficient way of transporting wine. Um, but it's it's kind of tackling the, the stigma, um, sort of removing the halo of glass, I suppose. Uh, not that glass will ever go away. There's, there's definitely place for uh, a multitude of pack formats, but I think there's there's a huge opportunity to, like I say, normalise seeing, seeing wine in different types of formats um, that, that just, particularly at the lower price points, that just means that, you know, there's, there's perhaps a, a bit more of a, um, uh, a break in the, pardon the pun, glass breaks, um, <laughs> a bit more of a break in that attachment of wine in glass. Um, we've actually been uh, developing as well a sustainable packaging framework uh, in BSI. I've been leading that work for a couple of months now. Um, the intention with the, the framework was that we've got a huge number of standards that already exist around um, specifications for packaging or energy management, transport, logistics, all the different facets of the supply chain. Um, and, you know, how do we how do we pathway, if you like, organisations into using those standards that, that represent best practice and um, and really come up with a sort of cohesive system that, that demonstrates that the organisation is actually doing the best that they can uh, with the packaging they've got or the format that they are, they are in. Um, it's really important that it, it's supply chain focused, so it addresses the whole supply chain. Um, and it doesn't, importantly, penalise plastics. Of course, plastics got a very um, terrible <laughs> image problem at the moment, and we will never um, lose plastic. Um, so let's let's you know let's demonstrate how actually good it can be you know it's it, there's a problem because it's so good at what it does so it would remove for example the, the issue of breakage in the supply chain it would remove um uh some of the weight issues because of course you can you can blow uh plastic much lighter than glass um it's also a way to educate consumers and kim and Anne both mentioned that and, and carlos actually about how do you actually and some of the comments actually say how do we actually share this with the consumer how do we share this amongst our users how do we share this amongst our customers that this package is is as good as it can be because uh, the BS, bsi has something called the kite mark it's a mark of trust and it indicates that that product or, or service is of a higher quality than any legal requirement so fire extinguishers is a really good example there's a kite mark for fire extinguishers 
and um, the legal requirements have nothing to do with the ability of that, that fire extinguisher to put fires out, but the kite mark does. It talks about efficacy of, of, um, of, of the contents of the fire extinguisher, the amount of torque it requires to, to, you know, to activate the handle. The, the legal requirements are that it just doesn't explode and hurt anybody. So the kite mark indicates that there's, there's a higher level of, of compliance in that um, product. Um, and of course, it's consumer facing. And we can also tandem that with uh, a QR code, which takes people and communicates people um, to people. Um, the kite mark certificate, or we can use a profile page that talks about the different elements of the package that, that help it to be as, if, as responsible. And I really like that word, responsible as possible, because, of course, people tend to take packaging away from the product, but we don't have packaging unless there's a product. So, you know, you have to kind of, Say okay, well, if you're going to buy that product, you have to take on board that, that there's a there's a, a an impact of that. Um, so the kite mark will help to hopefully communicate the, the credentials, and, and initially it would be around things like you know if you're wine in wine in a glass bottle, great example that perhaps the kite mark would indicate that the um, the, the bottle is as light as it can be. The, the paper label is is um, water based inks and um, soluble so that it can be e easily removed. Uh, the closure is from a renewable source, whether it be cork or um, a metal capsule. Um, and it might even indicate things like this wine from New Zealand is actually bulk shipped into the UK and bottled at source because that's a more efficient way of, of transporting it. Bottled, bottled at source, or bottled at point of point of sale, or um, in, you know, a bonded warehouse responsibly. Um, it's also intended to take note of the waste hierarchy because, of course, in different countries, there's different, um, uh, sorry, waste hierarchy. So reduce, reuse, recycle. So uh, let's bear that in mind. People always hop to recycle, but let's look at reduce and reuse. So acknowledge some of the reuse systems that can be uh, implemented. And then the waste management systems, of course, that is different in every country. Um, you know, in, in certain countries, you know, uh, certainly in Scandinavia, it's very normal to have ret deposit return systems and reusable systems. In uh, in the US, less so. <laughs> so it takes account as well that um, the kite mark can demonstrate the performance of that that pack format, that pack material in the country where it's being used. Um, alongside it, I think is 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 room for um, standardised life cycle assessments. I think I saw a couple of questions in the in the chat about life cycle assessment. Um, and doing a sort of comparison between um, two pack formats. So you might choose between glass and a plastic bottle, for argument's sake. Well, the life cycle assessment depends on where they're being sold and where they're being produced. So let's actually think about the, the, the holistic supply chain is, as an independent thing. But I think um, you can still utilise a standardised LCA um, to, to, to provide some of the metrics. And, and I think the, the beauty of this um the, the framework and, and applying the framework to a package or a, a product is that it's it's all independent it's all you know it's all verified by third parties so it gives that level of integrity perhaps that um self-declaration might not have um so that's sort of where we're moving with it i think it aligns very nicely with the sort of sustainable objectives um it, of course aligns with some of the sdgs so if there's organizations that have got claims around sdgs then it, it just fits in really nicely with that as well so hopefully that sort of gives a, a round out of <laughs> what bsi are at on this 
Thank you. We've got lots of time for questions. So, Carlos, we may get to the various court questions uh, shortly. But before we do that, I want to um, get into EPR and DRS. We've got to talk about it. Um, it's, it's a challenging and complex area. So, Joe, in, in your experience, how, how are these schemes developing and where do you see the best ones? And I was on a, a webinar not long ago with Anne and some others where the, the Scottish DRS scheme got a thorough beating um, as being uh, really unviable and put, potentially having those terrible unintended consequences that can make things worse. I don't know the full details of that, I have to say. I'm no expert on it. We will be talking about it a bit with, with Nick Kirk in the next session. But from your point of view, um, you know, who has the most functional scheme that, for creating incentives that don't have these unintended consequences, which we see so often? Are there any ones that stand out for you? Um, I think um, you know the Scandinavian countries seem to just have it now, and and, um, and and it's just culturally part of how they operate. So I think for them, uh, I mean, I'm not sure how long it's been in operation. Certainly, the first time I've been, I visited Norway, it was it was definitely there, and that was probably only about 15 years ago. Um, and um, I think the that the key to that is a, is a functional system. So it takes a motivated, uh, perhaps government regulatory organisation to, to, to install it, um, to get behind it, to, to endorse it, to mandate it to the retailers. I think it takes a functioning system so that things don't get stuck and systems are, are you know, very underrated in, in facilitating these things. Um, you know, we hop back probably 30, 40 years now until we had a, uh, when, we, when the UK is sort of a functioning doorstep delivery milk um, system um, that was all systemized. That was all very locally managed. So you know, there's there's there's, there's definitely something about the cultural norms there, um, and and um, yeah, sort of government support and and, and localizing okay. it and making it feel like that's that's you're doing the right thing by doing this. Okay, I mean, at one of our plastics conferences we hold every year, where about two hundred companies get in a room and scratch their heads for two days. Um, in a way that we are now, but um, under a lot more pressure because they have all this awful single-use plastic problem that the wine industry doesn't have quite as much as some of the CPG goods out there. We we had the, I've mentioned this before at conferences, but we, we got the behavioral science director from Unilever to come along and speak. And he said to the, the assembled companies, I know nothing about plastics really, but I know a little bit about how people behave as, as an academic and a behavioral science expert and he said the one thing you really have to do is make your customers value plastic mm. as a resource and if you don't do that nothing's really going to change except you'll get increasingly regulated so it's kind of up to you lead that change or accept what comes down the track um and i thought every, there was a silence in the conference and i thought that's either complete genius or a bit trite and a bit simplistic let's see what happens and over the next two days, guess what? That was what everyone ended up discussing. So, Kim, um, coming from Scandinavia, which gets, you know, Sweden gets very much put on a pedestal for sustainability awareness. <laughs> how, how is that happening in where you are? And, and, and are you seeing useful incentive schemes and DRS and perhaps any EPR approaches that are making a difference? Yeah. Uh... Yeah, definitely. I think two years ago, when um, the Swedish monopoly started to go out with this, you know, kind of standard, this is climate friendly packaging, and started communicating that to consumers, um, we we've seen um, we've seen the topic, you know, kind of uh, 
accelerating and also see the increase of sales of climate-friendly packaging. When it comes to recycling, I mean, when we look at glass bottles, for example, it's almost, I think it's 99% that are recycled at the moment, which is fantastic. Plastic, interesting topic. <laughs> we're not, I think at the moment, where is it a little bit over 50% uh, that are recycled. Is that PET? No, that's not PT. Now we're talking, no, now we're talking uh, bagging boxes and, uh, okay, and uh, so the, the mixed plastic. Um, and PT obviously is in the recycling system. Uh, so, so that's much higher. Um, but, you know, it's, it's interesting with, with class, the discussion about plastic in packaging, because if we look at uh, the standard that Sustainbolaget has set for climate-friendly packaging, we have uh, PT, for example, and uh, we need to remember that the bag in box still includes plastic, right? It's a plastic bag. The same applies to tetra pack and paper-based, the frugal bottle, for example. So, and while this trend uh, is growing, we see on the other side, as you were into single-use plastic, that more and more companies set climate, I mean, sorry, plastic reduction goals. You know, not like, Facing out all the plastic to 2030, 2025. So, so that's really a contradiction. So, I think um, a really interesting. This is starting to bubble, but uh, really interesting to see is the development of uh, bioplastics and uh, the use of bioplastic materials in in wine packaging. We're not there yet, but it's it's going to be very interesting to follow. Tommy, if I, if I may, and, and grabbing on what Kim was saying um, also, um, I don't think the problem is necessarily plastics. Uh, in some occasions, you do want to have plastics in your life. Uh, in some occasions, you do not need at all to have plastics in your life. And the problem here is, of course, like always, uh, and it's human nature trying to make generalizations, you know, about heavy glass versus thinner glass. So we need to have much more information from the production side, from the technical side, from the consumer side, because not, let's not ignore one fact. No one wants to sell wine and lose money. So the margins derived from a premium package matter. Do they matter the same in all price points? Of course not. But sometimes a heavy bottle makes as much sense as one of those big spoilers making a 10,000 pound car, none. But some people like it, you know. Uh, I believe there is a show called Pimp My Ride or Pimp My Car or something like that. Well, maybe there should be one about pimping my wine. That could make some sense. But health jokes aside, the important thing is either we start looking at this from a holistic point of view or we're not doing what needs to be done. Uh, one of the questions that, um, that someone asked is that, okay, do we have a life cycle assessment that compares everything with everything. So we have some database or data points in quantity and quality good enough to make a solid decision. And the answer is no. Um, I've seen a study not long ago, not the peer reviewed study, but I, I saw a study not long ago in South Africa, how a can of wine can produce over a thousand grams <laughs> of CO2 for a zero 30 something. Uh, CL quantity. I mean, this is crazy. Does it make sense to have um, tin cans to sell wine? 
probably does. If it brings new consumers to the category, then yes, maybe. Everything in life is cost-benefit. Ethical cost-benefit, financial cost-benefit, moral cost-benefit, you name it. So we need to have that balance. But we also need to understand that when we cut down native forests to plant monocultures to produce so-called bioplastics, does it really make sense? Is that really the way forward? And of course, the answer has to be inevitably no, especially in the case of cork, when you try to do that to replace a material that comes from a tree that never gets, gets cut down. That's a different story. But at the end of the day, we don't know everything yet. And I think what this roundtable, or Shiv and Toby and, 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 and Tom, we talked about this, and of course it's, it makes perfect sense, is to try to have a baseline that it's usable in as many situations as possible. Once we achieve that, then we'll be able to make uh, fact-based decisions in all price points and adapt it to all price points. Because let's face it, who is going to get excited about the next 2.99 Chardonnay coming from Australia in a light bottle? Someone has to say it, sorry, I just said it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah I, 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 would, I would agree. I mean, I think I think what, what the, the big danger is that people try and, and come up with innovative new formats. Um, and in order to hit a price point, the liquid isn't that great. And then the consumer sees a sustainable packaging format as not very good. And we want customers, we want customers to desire sustainability. We, we want them to, you know, not necessarily, they're not ready to pay more for it. But at the end of the day, their sustainability is unfortunately still a sort of secondary option they want they still want to buy liquid that they enjoy and they want to have a great time and they're buying a product and, and they need to be able to buy something and feel like it's a great product and it's sustainable isn't that amazing they don't want to be like oh I've got to compromise to be sustainable because they probably won't um I was also going to touch very briefly on um some sort of stuff Joe said about DRS and, and regulation and responsibility uh, responsibility, I think, is so fascinating. We, we did some trials with refillable bottles. Um, and actually, responsibility crosses in a lot of areas. So actually, then there's suddenly a case of, you know, are you about to totally bust your water consumption per shop because you need to sterilise every bottle? Or actually, are you not going to do that? And if that's the case, then where's your responsibility on food safety and handling? And if a customer complains there's a foreign object in their wine, where, where does that legal responsibility sit if they've brought in their own bottle? Do you give them a new bottle every time? And actually, what does that do to the carbon footprint if you're moving bottles around and having and people coming and getting a third party to come and collect, take it off somewhere, refill something and bring it back? So it's another of those things where, and actually, ironically, in, a, in some cases, there are elements of refillables that simply it's actually not possible to do it legally at present in the UK. In fact, globally, I think, because you're both an on-trade and an off-trade outlet at that point, and regulations differ. Um, and I don't think the government's that worried for small producers. But actually, when you try and scale it and make it something genuinely significant, then you've got to be legal. Um, and the regulations just haven't quite caught up yet um, in the UK. Um, and so there's there's a lot to be said for for that balance of responsibility and and all of these things look like simple answers and then when you start to get into the weeds are not simple answers um and that's why i think um 
having this collaborative forum and some of these discussions and the connections we're making and the round table but I mean we're not going to go on about the round table endlessly but actually we all do as an industry need to work together pool our knowledge pool our resources and come up with some some solutions that that people can actually move forward with in their different markets and then learn from it and progress this is not a kind of oh there's a solution tick box I've done that bit move on to the next this is a, a cycle of continuous development and we we all need to be working together which is just and it's so heartening to see it really starting to happen now and it is happening in other industries um you know palm oil is a really good example still a very demonized product but if you take away palm oil uh, your land use change goes through the roof because sunflower and rapeseed can't meet vegetable oil demand um, the productivity issues are nowhere near on other crops. And actually, the collaborative efforts made by companies finally after 15 years, almost well, 18 years through the, the Roundtable on Sustainable Palm Oil, have actually led to an enormous drop in deforestation in places like Indonesia. So um, now, there's not a direct causation there, but there's a serious correlation. So these Roundtables do increasingly have a track record uh, of creating uh, that collaborative environment. Coffee is a very good example um, now, coffee has its own problems, not least because the Brazilians love to mass produce commodities and dump them on the market <laughs> at scale. And that causes huge problems for other producer nations. But still, uh, progress is being made. And that is certainly something the roundtable will pursue. Let's jump up to the top of the chat and go through some of the questions. Uh, there are a few uh, related to closures. Um, Nick Wenman's asking, uh, do we have any stats on how cork compares to screw cap enclosures? I have a feeling you might, Carlos. Um, is cork more sustainable? I think I know the answer you'll give there. Uh, and how is it best communicated to consumers in a simple way? Now, we have touched on some of this, but I just wondered if you wanted to add anything to that briefly, Carlos. Uh, starting with the last question, I think um, one of the key things, especially in the UK, because they're and relating also to one of the questions, which is, is cork, can cork be recycled? Uh, yes, cork is recycled. There are recycling programs in the US, in France, in Italy, in Portugal, in Spain. Uh, and we recently started something in, in, in China, small, small size, but very, very interesting. Um, the question is, what is recyclable versus what is effectively recycled? And there's a lot of things that you know we put on the bin that is the right color for the right material, we put it somewhere else and we believe that that thing is going eventually to be recycled and it's not. And there is a big elephant in everybody's room, which is the inability to effectively end the recycling um, process with namely with plastics, um, not just with plastics, with many other things, electronics, et cetera, but with plastics, a big, uh, it's a big problem. So I, I think we also have to bear in mind that until we fix that problem, what, is the impact of the different things that end up in a landfill. Uh, and to be honest with you, if the worst thing that happens to the world is that a cork ends up in a landfill, then I think we would not be in that bad a shape. Um, and the other question is, do we have that data? Yes, that was actually the first peer-reviewed comparative life cycle assessment ever made between plastics, between screw caps and cork. Um, a couple of you guys asked me for that. Um, I will sending the, the, the links the, that is on is online. Again, it's a peer reviews from 2008. We will be updating it in the fourth quarter of this year. I don't think the third quarter will, will cut it. But um, there's, no, there's no surprises there. I mean, why should it be? I mean, it's 100% natural, 100% renewable material. So versus 
other things. So I, I don't think we should expect any major difference. The big challenge for us is without the retailers, it will be difficult for us to share those good news. It will be difficult for us um, to share the impact that one tiny little thing can have in terms of giving added sustainability aspects to the wine trade. Uh, and this in the UK, where you know, 87 or 88% of the wine is sold through the, the, the multiples, then even more difficult. In other countries, France, for example, is relatively easy. But I think recycle closes that loop. Uh, literally. And, and when you're talking about recycling corks, we have recycled about 500 million or so. That's a drop in the water. Because as I said, you know, every year we make 5.5, uh, 5.4 last year. So I think we need to have these schemes in place in the UK as we have in, in France, where Ocean, you know, one of the largest retailers in the world period has, has launched that kind of recycling initiatives. And the results are great because you, you do talk to the final consumer in a much more positive way. And the things that people can do with, with, uh, with corks are always remarkable. Us, we do flooring, we do, um, we do a bunch of construction and heavy industry applications. Uh, and actually we talked about sandals and, uh, and flip-flops a while ago from a well-known brand. Well, that's something also that can be done with recyclable corks and it gets done with recyclable corks. Okay, thank you. Dan Thomas had a good uh, technical question. Maybe I'll, I'll ask you about this, Joe, and then see if anybody else wants to comment. When we talk about packaging and reducing CO2, is there any real comparative data from cradle to grave of the material, not just cradle to retail, on the different materials that we could use, glass, plastic, aluminium, others? That sounds like well-trodden ground. Is that right, Joe? There probably are innumerable LCAs. The trouble with LCAs is, is that the scoping is... Uh, so important so if there's one aspect of the scope that differs from what you're trying to compare with then then it's it's useless which is why not useless but it's it renders it all you know not a standard comparison so that's why a standardized lca process system is, is really important to, to follow um, all of the industries behind plastic bottles glass bottles and, and so on will have data about the processes but again it's um, uh, it, 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 there's so many variabilities even in, in manufacturing, you know, in glass the size of the furnace, the, how much colour it goes in, how much uh, is fossil or, or renewable or how much you know, what the temperature, what the ambient temperature is going to affect um, you know, some, of the, some of the processes as well so it's the, uh, there is innumerable pieces of data out there and you just have to go to the, to the relevant websites to find that it's, it's whether you can draw a direct comparison um, and I think it's kind of missing a trick as well, because as there's a bit of discussion going on about the, as I mentioned earlier as well, the local waste infrastructure, what, you know, whether the population is motivated to, to, to handle this stuff. And, and, and I do think you can't actually lightweight your way out of problem. You've, you've got to kind of deal with the, the materials already in the system. Um, and so, uh, it, you know, that direct comparison is really, really tricky to do. I think you need to take, take note of um, the whole... Um, pre-cradle is there such a thing as pre-cradle you know the bauxite coming out of the ground I know that's aluminium but um, you know where do you start where do you finish so LCA is a, a really tricky um, thing especially when you, you add in then things like recycler which of course we know goes into glass we know goes into um, a, a, a plastics now so it's it's just a really um, it's a, a whole rabbit hole <laughs> Yeah, that's a common theme, isn't it, here? 
Um, we have a few minutes left. Interesting to talk about ideas around the circular economy. David Horlock has a question here. I don't fully understand, David. David, would you be able to join us and just clarify what you mean in a concise way? Are you there, David? Yes, I am. Um, thanks, Toby. Yeah, fascinating discussion. I think Anne made some really good comments there on sort of unintended consequences, which is 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 sort of excellent. And and it does force you to sort of think about you know you're solving one problem on energy, but then you create another one on material use or um, more energy somewhere else. And I was just um, wanted to ask the 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 panel there, you know, what are some good examples of best practice in packaging used in different scenarios? So when I say different scenarios, you know, what's the most appropriate thing for an airline where you've got small bubbles or what's the most appropriate for, you know, um, um, supermarket or bulk or, you know, just, just sort of give some examples of some of the creative thinking that's actually out there. Can I actually, if I can ask, if I can start by giving you one example. Um, the first UK recycling program um, was, was Tony Lathwaite himself that got involved in this and all the Lathwaite shops have recycling bins. Um, we ground those corks and created mulch for the vineyards that Lathwaite direct wine has in the field. I love that story. Yeah, and, nice. and, and hopefully before the end of the year, we'll have a similar story, but on a bigger scale in, in the UK. The hotel chain NH, um, you know, they have hotels all over, all over Europe. Every hotel where they have a restaurant and or a bar, they will recycle, recycle the corks, send the corks back to Portugal. We incorporated them into the production process of flooring. Every time NH needs to re redo or refurbish a hotel, room or a whole hotel, they will buy the cork flooring from us. So there are great examples of circularity out there. And I think what joins all of this, and we haven't talked about this, and I think it's important at least to bring up the issue, is that part of that leadership capacity that the wine trade has shown when it comes to sustainability is directly linked to the incredible relevance, cultural relevance that wine has across continents, age groups, gender, religions, you name it. There is one sound that it's incredibly understood all over the world as a happy sound, as, as, a, as a sound that conveys good news, that, that opening of a bottle, how much yeah. is that worth? Um, not just from a financial point of view, not just from an economic point of view, in terms of leveraging that incredible leadership that again, the wine industry had. And all of these things, when you talk about circular economy, all of these non-tangibles, which are very difficult to measure anywhere, you don't need to be an accountant to know that. These are incredibly difficult to measure. But if we don't factor them in, are they, we really telling the whole story? I don't think we are. I yeah, think I, that's pretty good. I think that's a really good point, Carlos. And you know, we like to say that you know, food or drink equals pleasure, and pleasure is taste, trust, and meaning. And there's a huge value add in that meaning there which is associated with culture and tradition and the time and the celebration. And we should never, ever lose sight of that because that has much greater value to the customer than, you know, simply going cardboard for the sake of cardboard. As Absolutely. And, and Anne alluded to that also. And, and I think from, from a retailer point of view, that final mile with the consumer 
uh, that's incredibly important. I mean, the value that it's, it's stored in there, it, it's not just a CO2 value. It's a lot of other value, a lot of other points that are or not included in there, and we must not forget about it. Yeah. Yeah, thank you both. Uh, any other comments from the panel on interesting examples? Kim, can I put you on the spot? Anything you've seen in, in your domestic market or elsewhere that fits into the category of an innovation we can think about? There we go. Um, I'm innovation. I'm thinking. Well, the you know the frugal bottle is interesting to look at because it seems really uh, attractive to consumers. But uh, the, but what I'm thinking of is um, it's not an example from our uh, market, but I know it's uh, happening on the U.S. market that uh, they're taking in big bulk into uh, stores and having the tapping facility or the filling facility. And that is really interesting looking forward. If that would be, uh, you yeah. know, not take over the whole, you know, we so, still want, want our bottles, but, but for larger volumes, I think that's that's really interesting. You mean customers bringing, bringing receptacles in to fill them up in the sort of exactly, r- exactly. rustic French, uh, but, you know, uh, story that we have from our grandparents or our parents or whatever. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's interesting. I know um, from our plastics work, Locatan, the cosmetics brand have been trialing that. So you bring your aluminium uh, branded Locketan container back and you mm. refill it in the store. Um, not without challenge, of course, with contamination, um, someone slipping on the cosmetics and <laughs> suing the store, the health and safety aspects. There are various challenges to that. But I think we all agree it's it sounds like a great idea if we can make it work. It's kind of mm. the consumer-facing version of having kegs in, in, in bars, isn't it, really? Anne, any, any comment you'd make either on that or on innovations you've seen on to answer David's question? Um, I think innovation's a really tricky one because um, at, so far we've not, uh, uh, obviously, because we wouldn't be in this position, we've not seen any innovation that's really taken off. Um, we see small innovations which work, but the, the paper bottle thing's really interesting. But actually, you know, the spirits industry's tried it. Some, some really big brands have tried it. Um, and we haven't seen it really take any any great volume. So I think that's sort of what we're playing for. I mean, a bit more innovation um, from the supply base. And I suspect it won't come from wine. I suspect anything around packaging will probably come out of spirits first because they're the guys with the R&D budgets. Um, but equally... And the margins as well, right? <laughs> not necessarily. <laughs> I was just looking um, at Diageo's profit margins versus Waitrose's. <laughs> I am absolutely not going to comment. <laughs> um, but I think I think innovation is is something that we as an industry lack. And um, actually, I don't necessarily think that is a bad thing per se. I think we we as an industry have spent we've spent decades, hundreds of years teaching consumers that um, heritage equals quality. You know, glass bottle, bit of cork. Chateau on label equals good. Um, and it's going to take a very long time to unlearn that. And I think um, that's why in the UK, particularly bagging box doesn't fly, even though now the liquid is much more premium and it's much better. Um, I think um, the Nordics in some ways don't have some of that heritage in the same way, not, not so much of the history. And therefore, perhaps that's why their consumers are more willing to experiment with formats. Um, and they they culturally have a much uh, 
they're much more advanced and much more they've more of their history is tied up with with being concerned about the environment and with sustainability and, and we as it we as a as a culture are just sort of just getting getting started really so I, and I think the cultural norm piece here and I think Toby you talked about behavior and economics but that cultural norm is I don't think we should beat ourselves up for the fact that that we haven't solved this yet uh, because it's a, a changing cultural norms across you know the world is is quite a big expectation and it's going to take time and that's where innovation comes in and I think that the refill part funnily enough I think actually I think refills customers probably would go for sooner um, because you're not actually taking away that cultural um, history um, and so I, I think that's where that was why we tried it I think there's real potential there but you know as we've all said not going to repeat myself too much it's complicated but you know yeah. it's also solvable I think but it's solvable with a great deal of research and somebody with quite a lot of money um, and unfortunately given post-covid world that's not necessarily something we've all got to throw around so that's again where collaboration comes in collaboration and sharing absolutely I mean uh, we have a session later on with uh, Muriel Chatel from Borough Wines and Damien Barton from Leoville Barton and they actually met at the first conference we did uh, two years ago and have got together and you can now, I think, get the, some of the Barton wines um, refillable through Borough Wines in the UK, who are a small retailer doing refills. So, you know, it's a small innovation, but as you say, and we need lots of those so we can learn what works and then we can try and get to that magic unicorn scale, <laughs> sustainable scale. That's really where we want to head. Um, well, we're, we're going to finish off uh, in about two minutes time. Let me ask you all to give some closing comments some perhaps a crystal ball time, some optimistic predictions for where we'll end up. Um, I'm going to start with you, Kim. Where, where do you think um, we're going to end up in a few years on this in terms of substantive changes from where we are now in terms of the, the packaging formats? Obviously, we've got COP26 coming up. The climate crisis is in, on everyone's minds despite the COVID challenges. So um, wh wh when you look into your crystal ball, what do, what do you see happening substantively in the next couple of years? Yes, yeah, so I think uh, what I was uh, talking a little bit about before, I think the pricing of CO2, you know, will we will have a price pricing it will increase. So I think it will be more and more and more relevant both for retailers and producers to reduce the CO2 from mainly packaging. And uh, I hope we to see some some type of standard for for glass bottles, so it's not the super heavy one. And I'm talking about larger volumes, not talking about our dear champagne, but lar larger volumes. And um, I hopefully we have a who knows a roundtable on climate smarter packaging for the wine industry. Um, but I, collaboration super important, especially I'm thinking with the with the material. Uh, packaging innovate um sorry industry as well i think a tighter collaboration there and i think it would be really really cool cool to see a refill in stores in the future and i think just as Anne said i think it was very good it's also you know that was the it's 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 a link to the authentically i mean the to to the origin of wine, you know, they, they have this in Italy and down in France, you can go and tap up your wine, your local wine, etc. So that's what I think. Excellent. That's a great list. We should summarise that and send it out. 
Joe, um, by the time we get to Anne, there, uh, Anne, Anne will be able to say it's all been said, but uh, let's see where we get to. Uh, Joe, uh, your crystal ball predictions. Um, uh, if I'd agree if with... Left uh, anything said. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with Kim uh, on the on the, on the the refill reusables. I think the Gotham Project we talked with um, in one of the previous events, they've got a really good uh, initiative on um, a bottle that's designed to be reused, uh, a glass bottle, so again, keeps that... that, that feel but it's not refilled in store it, it goes back um to a local sort of filling location um one thing i was thinking just as um uh, uh kim and Anne were talking about sort of um you know some of the other facets was you know we have this um the pleasure of opening the, the oh sorry it was carlos with the, the pop of the cork and it just made me remember that um i was talking recently about you know if we're a, 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 a culture perhaps that's moving more towards the experiential than the than the 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 materialistic then do we somehow um encourage an at-home wine ritual that doesn't necessarily include uh cork of course that's always going to have part of it particularly with sparkling i love the pop of sparkling um but you know if 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 wine does start to come in in different pack formats is there an at-home kind of ritual that we can start to um uh help consumers uh enjoy uh, to encourage them to really appreciate the, the good quality of the wine that's in different pack formats, as, as, as Anne pointed out, particularly in bag in box. Okay, yeah, I always wondered about the potential for, um, you know, a wine version of an espresso machine. Yes. And, and yes. what that supply chain would look like, um, you know, getting it through your through your door and then finding a way to, to get the capsules back. Although Nespresso... Their recycling rates, they get, they get back of those capsules is still nowhere near what it needs to be. I can't remember the exact numbers, but I think it's under 50%. It's 30, I think. Yeah, it's just 30. Yeah, that, and yeah. considering that's aluminium, a valuable resource that takes thousands of years to degrade. Yeah, the model's not quite been proven yet, has it? Possibly because they, they've never really created a consumer incentive scheme, as far as I can tell, to get the capsules. Mm-hmm. Um, Carlos and Anne, I'm going to ask you to be very brief now. So if you can do sort of 30 seconds each, crystal ball time. Carlos. I think we will be understanding a lot better the advances that the glass industry is already making and will be making to reduce uh, to reduce the CO2 associated with the production. I also think that we will be talking a lot more about water uh, than we are now and perhaps less about CO2. And also to finish in a, in a positive note, in 2004, there were about 4.5, 4.6 billion single-use plastic stoppers being opened in bottles of wine around the world. Today, that number, it's about 1.2, 1.1 billion. So that's a massive progress. It has been done. It's not all bad. There's some good news. Of course, you can say, well, there's still 1.1, 1.2 billion times where plastic, single-use plastic stoppers are used around the world. Well, yes, but that number, I very much doubt that will go up uh, and we'll certainly go down. Thank you. And final word. Well, as you said, it's, it's all been said. So I won't talk about specifics, but actually the thing that's exciting for me, and actually Joe, Joe sparked off some thoughts for me around the, the in-home piece, particularly because we do quite a lot of experiential and eventing with our customers. And there's a lot of, we're seeing a lot of development as we have done. I mean, the Institute of Masters of Wine, in terms of sending out samples in, in small 
um, in small servings and small formats for tastings, actually, how can we turn that into something that's genuinely exciting for a customer and isn't just about the nature of the liquid itself? But that's a, so that brings me on to the concept of marketing and consumer engagement. And for me, that is the really exciting part of where we are now, is that we're beginning to get that momentum behind us of customers, where therefore marketing budgets are beginning to be able to look at sustainability not just the sustainability budget. Now, now sustainability is on every CEO's agenda. It's not just a little department sort of dealing with sustainability. Actually, there's now genuine interest, genuine momentum. And for me, that that is what I find really exciting about where we are and where we're moving forward. And that I think we are we've got a real catalyst for change now. And I'm excited to be part of it. Thank you. Yes. And we we're starting to see that maturing approach from marketing teams. So in the early days of sustainability, you know, that marketing teams would storm in, get an eco label, get burned and back off. <laughs> um, and we saw that happen so many times with companies not understanding um, that, uh, you know, that certification is the start of a journey, not the destination. Um, and, uh, and now, as you say, that's really improved to the point where a much more mature approaches are being taken. And, and I think that the, the roundtable will be able to really learn from other industries on that and we look forward to doing so so thank you all very much for your time we're about um five six minutes uh, uh, running over we have a 10 minute break scheduled so i'm going to add um this on so we're going to take 10 minutes now before the next session uh, so if we can stop recording in a second but in the meantime let me thank Anne jones uh, carlos de jesus joe griffiths kim forsberg for their fantastic contributions thank you all thank you <laughs>